In 2021, distributing the COVID-19 vaccine presents a whole lot of logistical problems. But these problems seem small when you think about what the Spanish Empire went through to get the smallpox vaccine to their colonies in the early 1800s. The way that they know in this early point to ensure that it stays alive during the Atlantic crossing is to sequentially insert it into the bodies of these orphan boys. So, you know, you put it in the arm of one and it remains alive in his body for two weeks and then they take it from his arm and put it into the arm of another boy so that it stays alive over the course of the Atlantic crossing. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, we're looking back at pandemics past. Last year, the Centers for Disease Control invited Allison Pasca to share her research on what had worked and what didn't to spread the smallpox vaccine. Pasca, an historian at the University of Mary Washington, said she didn't have much good news to share. Allison, set the scene for me. We're talking about the early 1800s. How big of a problem was smallpox at that time? So smallpox was the most serious disease affecting the global population. It came around usually at least once a generation, and often in the best-case scenarios, it killed up to 10% of the population. Ugh. So it was, it was devastating. And what does smallpox do to you? What is it like to get it? Best case scenario, you get incredibly sick. Um, you get marked by pock marks, right? And you end up permanently disfigured. Um, you can end up blind. If you end up with the pox in and around your eyes, you can end up with an array of other kinds of disfigurement. And of course, the, the worst is that you can die. It seemed like it devastated indigenous populations in the Americas. It devastated, you know, from the time that Europeans come to the Americas, they bring smallpox with them. So once you have smallpox and survive it, you are immune to it. But for peoples who had not had contact with smallpox, they estimate that between 30 and 50% of the population will die. Um, and in some cases, much higher rates of mortality. Tell me about the smallpox vaccine. It was the very first vaccine that was ever created. It was. Now, at the beginning of the 18th century, Europeans learn from the Turks, actually, that you can inoculate, which is different than, than vaccinate. You can inoculate against smallpox. And that's by putting a little dose of the smallpox into the patient's arm. And for most of the 18th century, that's what people who try and manage smallpox do. Make a little lesion in your arm and they put a little bit of the smallpox in your arm. That works pretty well, except for when it doesn't. Hmm. And when it doesn't, Good. you actually get smallpox and sometimes die. And the real fear is that if you got smallpox, then you would also cause an epidemic oh, of smallpox, right. right? So at the end of the 18th century, a number of English physicians, most famously Edward Jenner, figure out that if you use cowpox and you insert it into a patient the same way, Cowpox will provide basic immunity to smallpox without the dangers of spreading smallpox. And what was the brainstorm about cowpox? How did they have that great idea? The famous stories, um, which are probably not true, is that Edward Jenner is wandering through the English countryside and hears or figures out that milkmaids don't get smallpox because they are exposed to cowpox. So why do they decide to ramp it up? And how do they ramp it up? How do you get all the people to get vaccinated? Well, this is really what my work is about. And I think this is some of the most interesting part of this whole story is how do you convince the very first people to submit to vaccination? Right. 
you know, so I study the Spanish empire um, and that means that that's Spain and almost all of the Americas um, and the Philippines. Um, and there's a guy, a physician, Francisco Javier de Balmis, who goes to the crown and says, I'll take the vaccine around the world to all the parts of the Spanish empire. And the king, who is Charles IV, says, all right, <laughs> go ahead. But they are having a hard time figuring out how to keep the cowpox alive. Because if it is not um, tended to carefully, it first loses its potency and then it dies. And what Balmis does is he gets together a, a crew of physicians and nurses and helpers. And they go and they get... 22 orphaned boys between the ages of three and nine who have not had the disease. The way that they know in this early point to ensure that it stays alive during the Atlantic crossing is to sequentially insert it into the bodies of these orphan boys. So, you know, you put it in the arm of one and it remains alive in his body for two weeks. And then they put it into the arm, of, take it from his arm and put it into the arm of another boy so that it stays alive over the course of the Atlantic crossing. And over the course of the next three to five years, they bring the cowpox vaccine to the Americas and then eventually the Philippines and around the globe. How sad, right? You know, it's actually not clear that it's sad. Um, the boys get immune to smallpox. <laughs> right, right. They do end up in the Americas. The Crown provides for them uh, some education and some care. It's not like they were going to have a really good life in an orphanage in northwestern Spain. And actually, of, of the first round of 22 boys, um, all of them survive. And they land in Mexico City. Tell me about that. Well, they eventually get to Mexico City. So they go first to the Canary Islands, then to Puerto Rico, then to the north coast of what is now Venezuela. They divide the expedition in half, and Balmis then goes to Cuba, then to Mexico. He spends um, a couple of months in Mexico, vaccinating as many people as he can. It is only minimally successful. They have an incredibly difficult time convincing um, the incredibly diverse population of Mexico to submit to vaccination. Everywhere he goes, there's always people who want to be vaccinated, but regularly they, they run into problems and have a difficult time keeping the cowpox alive and getting enough people um, to be vaccinated. Do the people they're vaccinating, let's say in Mexico, know about vaccines and understand the principle? No, of course not. This is the first time ever, right? Right. <laughs> and they don't quite believe it, or many people don't believe the idea. Um, it seems too simple a process. They are not interested in this idea of taking a disease, particularly a disease that comes from an animal and putting it into a human body. But most people just don't trust official medicine and government authorities and just don't think it's a good idea. And they, they've just made peace with smallpox. They think smallpox happens, people die, most recover, and we're just going to live with that. Exactly. You know, and I've been doing some research on, on kind of how mothers try and deal with smallpox. And mothers tell government authorities all the time, oh, we're good. We know how to deal with this. You mean back in the day? Yeah. They, they tell government officials, no, no, we don't need our children vaccinated. We, we, you know, we have traditional cures that will work. So how, when they were distributing the vaccine back then... How were they keeping it alive after they ran out of orphan boys, right? This is amazing. When they got to those points, they would say to the town, often to municipal officials, but sometimes to clergy, find us three or four boys, and it is almost always boys, um, to take to the next town 
you know, to to vaccinate them, take them to the next town, and we promise we'll bring them back. <laughs> what did you find became of the original 22 boys who crossed the Atlantic and were taught in an orphanage in Mexico City? Well, so it's not an orphanage in Mexico City, but it's like a charitable hospital, and it's new, and they put those boys there the promise that they've made to these boys that they, is that they will provide them with some education and um, and, and some kind of a, a of a job, you know, usually a trade, right? And these boys are taken care of, but they're not the most easy to train because <laughs> one thing that the that one of the supervisors uh, reports back to the crown is that these boys have been, of course, on ships. Um, for most of the past year or so. And he he writes back to the crown, we're having a very difficult time teaching them because they all talk like sailors. <laughs> right. They're just little sponges, right? <laughs> you know? And these are supposed to be, they're supposed to be providing religious education to these boys who have, have sailors' mouths. <laughs> you shared your history about smallpox vaccine hesitancy with the CDC (laughs) because they were hoping you could tell them how people got over their fear of the smallpox vaccine and maybe that would help them with their COVID-19 vaccination strategy. What advice did you have for them? Well, (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the, in the Spanish empire, they try everything. So they don't make vaccination compulsory. They do that from the beginning. They say, absolutely not. You have to persuade people. You have to persuade people with kind words. You have to make them feel comfortable. So in the very first rounds of vaccination, what they do is they have bands and they have fireworks and they have religious processions so that they make it a big festival to do. So that all kinds of people are coming into the towns and you say, oh, while you're here, let's let's get you vaccinated. Very much the same kinds of things that the CDC is trying to do across the country, you know, which is entice people. They talk about paying people, also something which um, lots of communities are doing now. They talk about the importance of getting religious officials, uh, religious authorities, clergy, to come out in public and say how important vaccination is. One thing that was striking to that audience was how the things that people tried in 1803 are the same things that they in the immunization services division were trying to do at the time. It's interesting that you say back then they tried to pay people to encourage them to get vaccinated, and that that didn't work. I would have thought it would. Yeah, I think that tells us a lot about the distrust that people have of both the medical system and the government is they don't even want the money. Um, You know, there's always people who would accept a little bit here and there. The The Spanish crown was not very excited about paying people, but it was proposed on a regular basis to try and increase the numbers um, of vaccinated. If people were so hesitant back then with when they didn't understand vaccines, let alone want to get a smallpox vaccination out of cowpox, how did we end up eradicating smallpox almost everywhere? Well, it took almost 200 years. You know, this was not fast. And what happens eventually is that nations around the world uh, require smallpox vaccination, you know, to go to school, you know, um, to do anything. Um, like I said, those of us of a certain generation, everybody was was vaccinated uh, against smallpox. And that's what really makes the tremendous inroads is compulsory vaccination around the world. Alison Posca is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington. Mask mandates, a rush for a vaccine, and debates about closing schools and bars. 1918 sounds a lot like 2020. Tom Ewing is a history professor at Virginia Tech. He takes us back to historical flu outbreaks 
to see what we can learn about today's COVID-19 pandemic. Tom, let's start by talking about the 1918 influenza epidemic. How bad was that one? If we measure by deaths alone, how many people across the globe died from that pandemic? So the estimates are between 50 and 100 million uh, people died across the globe. In the United States, um, the estimates are a little bit more accurate, and it seems to be about 675,000. The U.S. population was just over 100 million. Um, you know, so that's less than 1% of the, of the total population. But if you were to put that in today's numbers, um, that'd be about 2 million people dying. So much worse even than what we're experiencing now. By that standard, yes. Why do you think? Well, the 1918 epidemic was very unexpected. Influenza, you know, was a common disease. You know, people were aware of it. Doctors were aware of it. But they didn't see it as a deadly disease. They expected most people would would be sick for a few days. They'd have fever, chills, but then they'd be fine. The only danger, you know, was seen in, in very old people, infants, or in people who had some other health condition. And, you know, tuberculosis was the the deadliest disease. And so those people were seen as higher risk. What happened in 1918 is people got sick with influenza and they got very sick and then they died very quickly, often because the influenza would then lead to pneumonia. Um, and the pneumonia was really what, what killed a lot of the, of the victims of the epidemic. The other unexpected pattern in 1918 was that younger people were getting sick and dying, um, men and women in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And this was very unexpected for doctors. It's a pattern that has not been repeated in other influenza epidemics. And I think that's partly why it was so costly. You know, people who didn't see this disease as a danger, you know, suddenly became very sick and, and died. Isn't it stunning to think that the young people in this pandemic who have been the least hard hit in that way, it was completely the reverse in 1918. It was, you know, and I think, again, this was something that, that was very unexpected. It was, there was not a good explanation. And it, it becomes most obvious actually very early in the epidemic when the influenza sweeps through the, the army camps um, where young men who had just been drafted and suddenly, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of them were getting sick um, and dying. For the Army Medical Corps, the doctors and the nurses, you know, who were trying to care for these young men who were so sick and dying, it was, it was really quite uh, distressing and very confusing. They, they didn't know what to do. Um, they, they sent out urgent appeals for uh, more nurses, more doctors, for explanations of, of what was happening. It went through very quickly, you know, so within a few weeks, the camps, you know, basically went back to normal. But by then, the disease, which, which often, you know, came to the camps first, had spread into uh, the nearby communities, into cities and, and towns, and, you know, had become a, a national crisis um, in some ways, even as the camps started to, to see some improvement. So many children were orphaned by losing both the mother and the father. I read that some people would be fine when they left for work, come home, feel sick, and even die before the night was out. That's horrifying. It is. It is. You know, and actually one of the first recommendations uh, that came out from the U.S. Surgeon General in, in September of 1918 was if you feel sick, stay home. <laughs> you know, go to bed, um, call a doctor, you know, don't, don't go to work, um, you know, which is you know, I mean, that's a pretty common recommendation if you're feeling sick, but they were really uh, pushing that because they could see how quickly the, the disease um, was becoming critical and even deadly. That's also a product of, of the time because the United States was at war. And so there was actually a lot of pressure to contribute to the war effort. You know, so factories were running at, at you know, full capacity. The, the farms were called upon to provide more food. Um, you know, and so the idea that, that you could suddenly stop working and just stay home to make yourself feel better was kind of at odds with what people had been told for months about the war effort. But um, that was clearly a, a, a public health recommendation. If you start to feel sick, do not go to work. Don't get on the streetcar. Um, don't go out in public, you know, to, to keep the, the disease from spreading. Doctors and nurses worked themselves in some cases to death because they were caring for so many patients 
And, you know, then they became sick themselves and, you know, no one was there to take care of them. The medical journals that I've looked at in the months that followed had these long lists of physicians who who passed away during the, the epidemic. Often they were young, you know, men in their 30s and 40s, nurses who had become sick when they were caring for their patients. The response to COVID has been so politicized and partisan. Was that the case in 1918 with that flu? Generally, no. You know, what we've seen for the last year in the the United States, um, where how people responded to things like uh, whether or not you should wear a mask, whether or not schools should be closed, whether or not churches, you know, should stop holding services, what the kind of partisan line... That did not happen in 1918. Um, you know, there was a lot more consistency and agreement on the public health measures, on the steps that could be taken. I, I did, have not seen a divide between liberal, conservative, between Republican, Democrat on, on those issues. There were divisions on these public health questions, but they tended to be based on different kind of interpretations of, of the epidemic. There was a debate about whether or not masks would work. Um, and some city public health officers required masks. Others said masks, you know, they're not effective. We, we don't want to do that. Many school systems shut down for a few weeks in the fall of 1918, but um, the New York City schools and the Chicago City schools stayed open. You know, their school board or their school superintendent said the schools are, are cleaner than the homes in many cases. <laughs> you know, if the children are in school, they can be there can be a daily health check and then we can decide whether or not they're sick, they're better off in school than they are at home or out on the streets. And so they kept their schools open. In some towns, the health board would make a decision um, and then the business leaders would object, you know, so if they, many, many towns closed the theaters because they didn't want people congregating in a, in an enclosed space. And the theater owners might organize against that and say, we ventilate our theaters, we clean them. It's, you know, <laughs> they're better off in the theater than they are in their homes. But these were not political, you know, in the way we see now, where just who's making the argument suddenly turns around into, yes, I agree with that, or, or no, I won't do that. What about bars and churches? <laughs> so um, a lot of towns closed businesses, the bars, the saloons, um, restaurants were often the the busiest um, and most visible. Churches were also prohibited from from having services. A lot of bar owners, uh, a lot of clergy went along with these orders, um, but some objected. The clergy were, I would say, particularly upset if the town or the county prohibited church services but left other businesses open, um, like the theaters. Uh, They really didn't like that. You know, but I think there there are two, I think, really important distinctions between 1918 and, and, and 2020. Um, in 1918, these, these orders lasted only a few weeks in most cases. You know, so what we've seen for the past year was months and months of, of churches not having in-person services, uh, restaurants being closed, and, and so on. The other issue, of course, in 1918 is prohibition. By 1918, I think about half um, of the U.S. states had already imposed some form of prohibition on, on liquor. In other parts of the country, particularly the, the Northeast and the Midwest, there was a lot of resistance to prohibition. Um, and the, the, not only the, the bars and the saloons, but the breweries, uh, the distilleries were, were politically very powerful. And so they saw these closing orders as a kind of backdoor way to, to enforce prohibition. Isn't it strange that we were so confused in the beginning about whether we should wear masks, whether masks would be that helpful, when it was very clear that our much older relatives back then apparently understood it was airborne and wore masks. Why was this a mysterious remedy for us recently? The masks in 1918 were actually very controversial. Um, oh, you know, I think oh. we're, we're a little bit misinformed because we, we see all these photographs from 1918 of people wearing masks and we think, well, everyone wore a mask. That's simply not true. Um, you know, in most of the United States, masks were never required or even recommended 
for for general use. Um, physicians and nurses wore masks, you know, when they were treating patients. If you had a sick patient in your house, you were encouraged to wear a mask. But the places that actually required masks were, were actually very, very few. You've studied so many of these flu epidemics, pandemics, including the so-called Russian flu 28 years earlier. That was in 1890 and 1891. How bad was that one? And how did it compare with the one 28 years later in 1918? The Russian flu was less deadly than the Spanish flu. <clears throat> and again, I, I do say so-called <laughs> uh, before these because neither the Russian flu did not start in Russia. The Spanish flu did not start in Spain. But these are the most, the most common names. Um, you know, the, the, the similarity is, is they both uh, spread very quickly. Uh, they spread quickly across the world, but they also spread very quickly in communities. But it was never as deadly. You know, more people got sick. It did lead to an increase, you know, in the number of deaths from influenza and pneumonia, but not nearly on the scale of, of what you see in 1918 and 1919. I think one of the similarities, and it's a useful comparison to, to COVID, um, is it you know it gets the attention of uh, physicians, of public health leaders, um, of researchers, and so one of the things that comes out of the the Russian flu, you know, is a lot of research on not only influenza but on contagious diseases, uh, on epidemics, on infectious diseases, and so when the first signs of another influenza outbreak appear in the fall of 1918, both in Europe and then in the United States, they, they go back to this earlier example for evidence, for, you know, look for patterns to anticipate what's going to happen. Unfortunately, they, they draw kind of the wrong lesson. Uh, the lesson that they take is it moved quickly. A lot of people got sick very, all of a sudden. But not many of them got really sick and not many of them died. And so the predictions early in the 1918 epidemic actually turn out to be wrong. You know, and I think, again, you can see a parallel early in 2020, you know, some of the first warnings and predictions about, about COVID-19 were, you know, this is a, a new virus. It's going to spread quickly. Uh, we don't have immunity to it, but we don't expect it to be deadly. You know, we don't expect a lot of people to, to die from this particular disease. And of, of course, that was wrong. But, you know, there is that tendency, I think, early in an epidemic to, you know, to look back to the previous ones and then, you know, try and draw some, some lessons you know, having now gone through this really terrible um, epidemic of the past year, I suspect the next epidemic people will will take it more seriously. Um, you know, they'll be more concerned and more cautious. Tom Ewing, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Tom Ewing is a history professor at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. Navigating social lives in the time of COVID can be awkward. How do you tell your friends, no, I won't be joining you at the restaurant, but yes, we can take a walk in the park together without having to explain or excuse? Carrie Dolan is a professor of health sciences and director of Ignite, a global health research lab based at William & Mary. Dolan says we need to get better at communicating our personal risk levels during the pandemic, or we won't be able to stop the spread. This interview originally aired in February 2021. Carrie, you have studied public health for years. How does your work on HIV and malaria influence how you teach people about COVID? So I think the work that I have done for the last several years has to do with targeting limited public health resources where they're needed the most. And uh, one thing that I have learned is that in order to get people to use interventions that help save lives, you have to have a piece about motivation. So for example, with the case of uh, HIV, uh, one of the best interventions we have are condoms. With the case of malaria, uh, one of the best interventions we have are malaria bed nets. And so with COVID, one of the best interventions we have are masks. 
but people don't always use the masks. And, you know, the masks are great. They're one of, they're cheap. They're very effective. Um, but we have to be able to have people use them if we're going to get a protective effect across the community. And what is your tool when it comes to helping people want to wear masks? One of the major tools that I have is this Know Your Number scale. And so it's a scale from one to five where people can self-identify where they are in terms of how they're feeling about their COVID risk. And so you can use the, the Know Your Number scale to be able to communicate to other people uh, how you're feeling. And so, for example, uh, at our house, we're a three. We have a lot of ability to control our use of PPE and um, to social distance. We can work from home. And so I feel really comfortable being able to interact with a small group of people. But that's not the case for everyone. And so this number scale really helps people have a dialogue about where they are and be able to move forward together instead of apart. Do you know any people who are, let's say, a five? Yeah, so I have friends across this whole scale. So I have friends that are ones, and then I have friends who are fives who are off skiing, and um, they're very comfortable doing that. And what I think the scale does is it it eliminates the judgment factor that's associated. We all have different risk factors associated with uh, our likelihood of getting COVID. And so the scale allows us to know where other people are and then make decisions for our own selves and keep the focus on ourselves and what, what our own next best steps are. So I guess it's not hard and fast, but just quickly go through one to five and tell me what risk factors might be involved in those various numbers. Yeah, so if you're five, you're probably young and very healthy. You probably have a lot of ability to uh, control your external environment. So these fives are mostly working from home all the time. Um, they don't have any comorbid conditions. Uh, they exercise regularly. They eat really well. Uh, and they aren't in the demographics that we think are most at risk. So typically when I think of the fives, I think of fives are my friends that are willing to get on an airplane and fly different places to have different experiences, whereas a four might be a little bit more conservative, still doing a lot of different kinds of experiences and things out in the world, but maybe not quite ready to hop on the plane just yet. A three, we are threes, and so um, we interact with a small group of people. We wear our masks uh, when we're outside of that group of people. We practice social distancing, um, but we still interact with other people. And um, we can do that because we're also healthy and we don't have any comorbid conditions. And we have young children who, at this point, we've gone on with the pandemic for a long time and we've got to find ways to interact with people we love. And so for us, a three is a comfortable place to be. And then twos are people, uh, I would say that my parents are twos. They're in their 70s and they um, have some comorbid conditions, very conservative about the people that we they see. When we interact with my parents, we only do it with masks and socially distanced. And um, so our ones are people, my friends that really haven't left the house. So these are people that have serious health concerns that are still ordering all of their food in and they are still not interacting with other people, masked or not masked. And so that's the most conservative. So how useful really is having a one to five COVID number? Is it just about personal decision making or does it really help sort of keep us safe? I think it helps keep us safe because it helps us foster a dialogue about how we're going to interact with other people. So instead of assuming that you know where somebody is, or applying what characteristics that you're using to define what is safe to other people, we're able to actually articulate for ourselves where we are and then tell other people. And so what that looks like for me is that we've had to make some difficult decisions. We've had to say to people, no, we are a three, and so we're not comfortable doing uh, or interacting in a certain way. And it, it, it takes a lot of the judgment out of it. So one thing I want to say about this number scale is it's important to use it to continue to have a dialogue. It's not meant to put people in a box where you then stay. People move along the scale. So I would say throughout this pandemic, I've been anywhere from a two um, up to a four. Uh, and I use where I am on this scale 
to talk about how we're interacting with uh, our son's friends, but then also to talk about how I'm interacting with my work environment. But it seems like the problem is, what if everybody around you decides they're a five and they can go maskless or take risks or hover around your personal space? Leaving it up to everybody to decide their own number is a little risky, right? Well, at the end of the day, we all we can do is keep our side of the street clean, right? And we can only focus on ourselves. I mean, we can only dictate our own next best steps. So what I've looked at is an opportunity to meet other people and, and form other kinds of activities with people who are more in my number group. But I will say that once I've communicated where I am on my scale, so if I tell my five friends that I'm a three, when they interact with me, we do three-like activities. I think it's just a sign, of, like a communication and respect so that, that we can find ways to interact with people that we love. Is the system, is the numbering system, the COVID number, dependent on certain baselines, community norms, like even if you're a five, you are going to wear a mask and protect other people? Yes. So the policy guidelines of masking, distancing, washing your hands are extremely important that we all adhere to when we're moving outside of the area that we can uh dictate our own next steps. So when we go to the grocery store, it's important that we still follow the recommended public health guidelines to keep people safe. I've never thought about my own COVID number before, but are people in your community using this system? Do they have COVID numbers? Yeah, so I've used this in a number of ways. I use this on a personal level, like we've already talked about with how we integrate with our friends and our family. But then also on campus, I'm part of the COVID mitigation and response team. And so we use the number to help talk about how the college students are integrating when they come back to campus. This is William and Mary. Yeah, so this is William and Mary. So William and Mary is about a three, and that's kind of how we can operate. So if you're a four or you're a five, it's the expectation that when you come back to campus that you norm your behavior down around to be around a three. If you're a one or two, you need to understand that we can't put all of the structures in place that would then norm down to those numbers. And so people need to be aware that when they come back to campus, the expectation is that you adhere, you know, to that structure. What about in schools? So if you go from college system to a school campus for K through 12, how might they use a number system? So one thing that I recommended to our public school system is that they consider using this as a dialogue to to talk about people within their teams. So for example, you could have a team of teachers all teaching fourth grade and one teacher be a five and another teacher be a one. And it's important to know where people are coming from before you try to start working together again. What I have found is that when people learn that somebody is more conservative than they are, then they try and do what they can in order to try and help that other person create a safe environment. So people are motivated by three things. They're motivated by how they think, how they feel, and what they can do. And so um, this number system is really a way to be able to quantify how people are feeling about their COVID risk. What people think, this is the data. So this is what we know about percent positivity. It's what we know about the infection rates within the school system. It's what we know about the burden of disease, the prevalence in our community. And then what we can do are the interventions. So it's the masking, it's the distancing, it's the hand washing. But you need all three of these pieces to come together. And so what was lacking from the national dialogue was this uh, discussion about how people feel. So we knew a lot about the numbers and the data. We also knew a lot about what we could do, but we weren't integrating this piece about how people feel in a way that was meaningful. And so it was like we, you know, we had one leg off of our stool. So once we get all three of these things together, we can really coalesce around a healthy next step. So in the case of the schools, it's how we could reopen safely. Carrie Dolan is a professor of health sciences and director of Ignite, a global health research lab based at William & Mary. This interview originally aired in February 2021. Even as the spread of COVID-19 is slowed, the viral spread of misinformation online continues to grow. 
Janine Guidry, a media professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, is trying to stay on top of it. This interview originally aired in May 2020. Janine, you were part of a research group dedicated to figuring out how people respond to messages. And you and your colleagues have recently, of course, pivoted to how people are responding, especially on the internet and through the news media, to messages about COVID-19. Tell me a little bit about what you're looking at. What are people saying about COVID-19? How are they expressing their concerns, their fears? Uh, Is there misinformation that's present in these messages and the things that people talk about? And um, what are people, for example, saying about things like flatten the curve, like the things that we're hearing about social distancing? How is that being perceived? Because if we know that, in a greater way, we also are going to be able to better communicate why this matters so much and how, as a society, we can better address this. It must be exciting, especially now during the shutdown, to be collaborating with people in such far-flung places. When all this started and we were starting to work from home, most of us, what we said was, we're in the midst of this. We're in a unique opportunity where we're in the midst of a pandemic. We're living through this. Let's learn as much as we can. Just like people are working incredibly hard to develop a vaccine, what can we do to make sure that, for example, when that vaccine comes out, people are more likely to accept it? What can we do to make sure that people are less scared, that they have more information? I'm very grateful that we can do this. It's so interesting because we've talked so much about how soon can we develop a vaccine and which one is going to work. We've talked less about whether the public would be willing to get vaccinated once one is out. What's the thinking on it? We know that there is a fairly large group of people who are concerned about vaccines in general before we ever got to COVID, who think that vaccines may be harming people or harming their children. And we're really interested to see how is this going to work with COVID? Because one of the reasons it's so hard to communicate with people about vaccines is we haven't seen the diseases. When's the last time we saw a polio patient? Here now we have a situation where we see the horrific effects of COVID-19 on TV and on social media in front of us. And so that is different. And where we're hoping that this is going to make a difference is because people see how serious this disease can be, that they're also maybe more willing to say, okay, I'm going to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's what we're going to need to see happen. The first struggle is getting the vaccine developed and approved and working. But then we need to see sufficient numbers of people getting the vaccine, or we're still not going to be in the clear, so to speak. How long do you think it will be before we have something, even if we bypass certain safety protocols because of how dire our situation is? In what I can can see, what I hear, we're looking at 2021. And if we get one in 2021, it'll it'll be fantastic speed. The Ebola vaccine, I believe, took five, six years to develop. And that was incredibly fast. It's interesting how you first got into studying the public response to vaccines You did your dissertation on a study of Pinterest posts and vaccines. I think of Pinterest as a place for pretty pictures. How did you discover Pinterest was relevant to vaccine messaging? I was was a PhD student, and I thought, huh, Pinterest, that's interesting. I use it for recipes and decorating ideas. I wonder if there's health information on there. And I typed in vaccine and vaccination, and lo and behold, there were a lot of conversations that you would not really see if you don't search for it. And so I studied that. I looked at, uh, I believe, 700 pins. 75% were strongly anti-vaccine, where people were saying, uh, this is a hoax. Vaccines are population control. Vaccines will kill your child. Did you get the impression most people posting meant well? Yes. From what we can see, there's two main groups that posted this on Pinterest. Number one is the group you just described. It's parents who are truly concerned for their children, who are truly thinking that these vaccines are not good for us, for our children, and who want to share that because of their deep concern. But then there's a group of people who try to sell certain things like supplements and who really play into, in a lot of ways, the fear that we see. And what were the predominant claims against vaccines? Um, Vaccines causing autism. Vaccines 
containing elements that are harmful for us as human beings, vaccines being used as population control. And what about pharmaceutical companies or the government? Those fall under conspiracy theories, yes. For example, pharmaceutical companies make vaccines so they don't work, so that you will need more treatment. Or doctors want to give your child all these vaccines because they get paid more money. Listen, nobody is perfect and there are issues in the pharmaceutical world, in our government, and even in the medical world. And I say that I'm the sister of a doctor and two nurses. There are no perfect entities in, in this universe. But those things, they're just not true. I believe that is preying on people's fears. If you are concerned already and you read, I can't trust my doctor. I cannot trust that this is something that's going to be safe, that it's actually meant for good. That is heartbreaking to me because vaccines are public health's greatest triumph. If we could go back in time and see what polio did Lots of these infectious diseases that we now don't even think about anymore and how we're able to protect people right now. I can't wait till there's a vaccine. I I want the vaccine for myself, for my elderly mom, for my friends who have chronic diseases. And right now, it just doesn't exist. But we have that for HPV. We have that for measles. We have that for all these other diseases. And yes, there's side effects to everything, but autism isn't one of them. So you looked at the vaccine misinformation being spread on Pinterest about five years ago. Is it still there? It technically hasn't been removed, but Pinterest about a year ago took action and said, wait a second, if there's that much misinformation regarding this topic on our platform, we're going to do something about it. And so at first what they did is they blocked searches for the word vaccine. If you would type that in, you would get a message that said, there's a lot of misinformation about this topic on our platform. We recommend that you go to this source for correct information. And then about three or four months later, last summer, they started populating those searches with Posts from reliable entities, the World Health Organization, the CDC, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, things like that, to stop the spread of misinformation related to vaccines. They're also doing the same thing with COVID-19 right now. A lot of other platforms have followed suit and do a lot of similar things right now. It's not perfect. Messages slip through. Um, The messages that show up aren't always that great. And so it needs it needs continual improvement. But the fact is that there is now a lot less misinformation about vaccines on Pinterest and on other platforms than there used to be. A friend of yours said the Internet is flat. What does that mean? What that means is there's not a lot of difference in how a claim that is true and a claim that is misinformation gets presented. There's so much information And it all comes at us and we can't automatically say, well, this comes from and therefore it's trustworthy. And that flatness that everything is accessible to us and then having to decide, well, what's what's truth here? What what do I trust? Who do I trust? That, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that we have right now. And of course, the problem for all of us is we're all in the same boat. Even the experts don't have one single answer. No, that's the problem because we're we're dealing with a moving target. We're dealing with a virus that we just at all didn't know in January. There is this uncertainty and then things change and recommendations change. And that I think is hard for us. We want to see black and white. We want to see definitive statements, but we can't make definitive statements. Not yet, not right now. Once a vaccine does come out and we really need to ramp up, What are best practices for communicating? Like, what are we going to need to do to persuade the population, come and get it? I think our communication starts now. We need to use credible sources and we need to release accurate messages as soon as possible. People are likely to believe, and this goes for all of us, we are likely to believe the first message that we hear about something. So the messaging about a future COVID vaccine needs to happen now not when we're almost ready to get it out because there's so much misinformation um, already going around that the COVID-19 vaccine will have a will have a microchip in it, um, that it will be used to track people. Those kind of things, we need to have a lot of 
reliable information already kind of setting the stage and saying, when this comes out, here's why we need it. Here's what herd immunity means. And this is how the vaccine works in helping us reach that. Do you think we're forever going to see our world as pre-coronavirus and after coronavirus? Yes. I think this is such a, a global event. Um, I heard a friend say that at the end of this, we're all going to walk out with a level of PTSD. And, and I think there's some truth in that. Um, this is so impacting, and we're in the middle of it, so we don't quite know what the ultimate impact will be. But yes, I think there will be a before and after. Um, at the same time, we will get through this. There will be a vaccine. There will be treatment. We just don't know when. And once we have a vaccine and once there is treatment that has been tested and that has been proven to be safe and effective, the the environment's going to change. That's when we're going to be in the post-COVID-19 environment. That doesn't mean the disease is gone. Uh, the general understanding is that COVID-19 is something we're going to deal with for a long time. But once we have a vaccine and medication to treat it, it's not going to be this big unknown. We have a way to prevent you from getting it. And if you do get it, we have a way to treat you and keep you safe. Janine Gidry is director of the Media and Health Lab at Virginia Commonwealth University. This interview originally aired in May 2020. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.